The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball. From Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Remember the scene in the movie The Godfather, where while they are baptizing his son Al Pacino as Michael Corleone, has Victor Stracci whacked in the elevator and Mo Green whacked on the massage table and Carmine Cuneo whacked in the revolving door and Philip Tatalia whacked in his bungalow and Emilio Barzini whacked by a fake cop and Sal Tessio whacked anyway and Carlo Rizzi whacked in the car and the Barzini enforcers whacked at the restaurant and Fabrizio whacked in Buffalo. Metaphorically, that was the kind of day Donald Trump had, except he was all 10 of the guys from The Godfather who got whacked. Most importantly, and most immediately, two of his own appellate appointees basically said his federal appointee, Eileen Cannon, judged Trump's demand that a special master review classified documents using incorrect criteria, ignored facts, outstripped her own authority, and never bothered to notice that Trump's primary argument that he had declassified all the documents anyway was a, quote, red herring because declassifying an official document would not change its content or render it personal. Unquote. It goes without saying that Judge Cannon cannot have any dignity nor conscience. She was appointed by Trump with no previous judicial experience. But any other judge whose ruling was so 
thoroughly vivisected in a 29-page ruling by the appeals court would have resigned from the bench by about page 22. Trump could presumably appeal now to the Supreme Court. The Department of Justice had said it would have done so had the ruling gone against it. But the 11th Circuit ruling is so strident and unambiguous that it would seem to leave even Trump's three appointees at the Supreme Court little room to overturn. Plus, the appeal lets the rest of the Trump special master thing continue anyway, addressing what is supposedly his true desire here to get his private papers or ones he believes are covered by his expired executive privilege returned to him. Plus, even if there is an appeal to the Supreme Court, the appeals court just gave prosecutors the right to continue their investigation approximately right now-ish. Trump's initial response to having managed to lose the same case to the Justice Department twice, he told Sean Hannity, his spokesmodel, that he didn't pack those boxes. The GSA, along with people in the White House, packed those boxes, and there are pictures of the boxes being packed in the White House, which, of course, does not address, let alone explain why, if he discovered they'd packed in things they should not have packed in, he didn't return those things, considering he was asked to nicely by the National Archives repeatedly. Trump also told Hannity that there is no process for declassification by a president, that a president can declassify anything he wants to, quote, even by thinking about it. The old Jedi declassification mind trick. Blink once for classify, Donald. Blink twice for declassify. Which, again does not address, let alone explain, that two judges he appointed say the issue of declassification is a red herring and has no meaning in this. Trump also told Hannity that during the search, the FBI took something he had not mentioned previously. They took his will, which at least fits into my Godfather baptism scene metaphor. So that's Trump as Mo Green, Earlier came something less lethal, but perhaps just metaphorically impactful. New York State Attorney General Tish James went ahead and filed her civil suit against Trump and the organization and the kids, Cocaine Trump and Eric Trump and Morticia Trump or whatever her name is. And the suit itself and the additional criminal referrals to the IRS and the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York are meaningful. But the real pain for Trump is, and you need to process this, he will have to defend himself in court on the charge that he just isn't as rich as he says he is. Few things matter at all to Trump. He is not a human being in the conventional sense of the phrase. But the idea that he is not super wealthy is devastating to him. The suit would prove he's a loser. The suit would prove that other people have more money than he does. And the claim that he exaggerated the value of Mar-a-Lago from $75 million to $739 million is, if you'll forgive me for switching movies for a third time in mid-analogy, like throwing water on the Wicked Witch of the West. Naturally, Trump resorted to the most logical retort to this suit that Attorney General James is a racist. Okay... The most salient commentary on the James lawsuit comes from the former baseball infielder and legendary ex-San Francisco Giants third base coach Tim Flannery. I will quote it in full. Wait, Flan tweeted. 
are you telling me that the guy with the fake hair and fake tan and fake teeth and fake SAT scores and fake bone spurs and fake electors and a fake foundation and a fake university and a fake charity also has fake taxes? Get the F out of here. As if this were not enough legal stuff to keep a whole team of Alina Judge Reinhold Habas busy, the trial has also begun of Trump ally Tom Barrack for operating as an unannounced foreign agent for the United Arab Emirates. And E. Jean Carroll began the process of suing Trump under a new law that lets rape victims in New York collect damages even if the regular statute of limitations has expired. So who outside of Trump land proper gets metaphorically whacked in the Godfather part Trump? How about Ron DeSantis? The website The Intercept now reporting that the $615,000 contract to kidnap the Venezuelan asylum seekers from Texas and take them via Florida to Martha's Vineyard, that contract went to Vertol Systems, Inc., a major donor to Florida Republicans, including at least one DeSantis employee. So, Rhonda, how are those potential criminal indictments of you coming along? It's just coming in onesie twosies. Also metaphorically sleeping with the fishies, a Trump endorsee and protege who is also providing a test to see if there really is one remaining third rail in American politics. If a candidate still can't survive, if it turns out he lied about his military service. My name is J.R. Majewski. And my pronouns are patriot and ass kicker. And liar. J.R. Majewski, the Republican nominee, January 6th insurrectionist, slovenly bearded bad hip-hop artist trying to unseat 39-year veteran Marcy Captor from the Ohio 9th at the infamous Trump-Hitler QAnon rally in Youngstown, Ohio, last Saturday. Majewski seemed a little blitzed. He did have trouble pronouncing the word president. In addition to the usual Trump vice signaling, Majewski has really pushed his record as an Air Force combat veteran who, after 9-11, deployed to Afghanistan. Nope. The Associated Press got his military records, and Majewski, it turns out, got no closer to Afghanistan than six months at an air base in Qatar, where his pronouns were patriot, ass-kicker, and package-lifter. His military experience consists of loading planes 1,100 miles away from the nearest gunfire, and unfortunately, he has given interview after interview in which he has lied about that. Did you serve in Afghanistan? Yes, I did. How many tours? One. What, what year were you there? What years? Uh, 2000, 2002, 2003. Wow. So you served right at, right at the beginning. Yeah. What was that experience like? Um, tough, tough. I don't like talking about my military experience. Not, not, not that, um, not that we've said too much. I just don't, I don't really like to, I really don't like to divulge a lot of things about the military because, you know, they're to me, you know, it was a, it was a tough time in life. And on and on and on. Majewski frequently pretended to be reticent to talk about his time in Afghanistan, and now we know why. He hadn't done any time in Afghanistan, and he clearly was not a good enough liar to even make anything up about it. 
But at least once, he did say conditions were tough in Afghanistan, and that included a lack of running water, which forced him to go more than 40 days without a shower. See, actually, I'm believing this guy has gone 40 days without a shower. Still ahead on Countdown Sports, Aaron Judge did not hit his 61st home run last night, which gives me even more time to explain why his 60 home runs is nothing close to Babe Ruth's 60 from 1927. And yes, I also felt this way about Mark McGuire and also get off my lawn. Fox News may soon be owned by a high school teacher in Ontario after Tucker Carlson slandered, libeled and misidentified him. And the day somebody mailed me what they claimed was anthrax, sent it to my home, the FBI asked me to not report the story on TV just for one day to help them continue their investigation. And that's when the New York Post ran it anyway and identified the real culprit, me, in things I promise not to tell. That's next. This is Countdown. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Thank you, Larry. Still ahead on Countdown, Tucker Carlson accuses a male teacher of wearing prosthetics women's breasts and implies he solicits kids. Problem? He named the wrong guy. There's that reason never to trust a Rupert Murdoch news source. Then there's my story about the day the New York Post literally made up a gossip item about me, then trashed me for calling the cops when somebody sent what they claimed was anthrax to my house. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need whom you can help. Every dog has its day. A nightmare at the New York Pound again. Sixteen dogs on death row, including four-year-old Coley, who's a big, beautiful 46-pound mix. A husky, an Akita, a shepherd maybe, gorgeous eyes. He's great with dogs, with kids, with strangers. Left at the Pound because his owner was moving and now on death row because he's terrified of the Pound. Coley's best bet, our pledges to help him defray the cost of a rescue, to pull him out and put him with a foster. If you'd like to help Coley, look for my tweet on my account for dogs in trouble, Tom Jumbo Grumbo, about Coley, and thank you very much. Coming up on Countdown, I'm going to get myself into all kinds of trouble about Aaron Judge, the Triple Crown, and the home run record. Can't wait for that. First, postscripts to the news. Some headlines, some commentary, some snark. Dateline Washington. The House has approved revisions to the 1887 Electoral Count Act to preclude a repeat of the fake electors part of the coup. It passed on strict party lines in favor. 229 Democrats opposed 203 seditionists. Dateline Washington. House Leader Kevin McCarthy was to reveal the GOP's so-called commitment to America on Friday. Instead, it went live accidentally online yesterday and gave away the secret the Republicans had been hoping to keep, that they will impose national abortion laws. Then they tried to put the toothpaste back into Kevin McCarthy by taking it offline. Also, read the screenshots of the thing. Commitment to America? Closer to commitment of America. Dateline Oakville, Ontario. Meet the next owner of Fox News. He's teacher Stephen Hanna of Trafalgar High School there. Fox's Tucker Carlson showed video of a male shop teacher wearing prosthetic female breasts. He implied the man wanted to do bad things with kids and then identified the man in the video as Hanna. Problem? Stephen Hanna is not the man in the video. Carlson, who is not right in the head, is now in a world of financial hurt. 
Dateline, the United Nations, pressed at a live media event by the New York Times, the World Bank president, David Malpas, revealed he is a climate change skeptic, asked, do you accept the scientific consensus that the man-made burning of fossil fuels is rapidly and dangerously warming the planet? Malpass answered, I'm not a scientist and that is not a question. What we need to do is move forward with impactful projects. Malpass was the chief economist at Bear Stearns for six years. Then it collapsed. He contributes to the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, which we all wish would collapse. He was appointed by Trump. We know about his collapse. He needs to be removed by Biden. And Dateline Moscow, the anti-Putin, anti-war protests that erupted across Russia yesterday are far too fluid a story to assess on a recorded podcast. But Russia's continuing outbreak of contagious defenestration has claimed another victim. Anatoly Geroshenko, former head of the Moscow Aviation Institute, fell to his death Tuesday inside the Institute's headquarters. The Russian news outlet Esvestia phrased it thusly, he fell from a great height and careened down several flights of stairs. As the other Russia joke goes, Russia continues to be plagued by a Windows virus. This is SportsCenter. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, baseball, Buster Posey, former catcher of the San Francisco Giants, will become a part owner of the franchise. This will probably increase the likelihood of his election to the Hall of Fame, which is kind of unfortunate because he quit playing at the age of 34, which is fine. But his career numbers are in the Jorge Posada, Elston Howard, Thurman Munson range. And if Posey is a Hall of Famer, all of them and about five others are too. The Kansas City Royals have fired President Dayton Moore, who built the team that somehow got to the World Series in 2014 against Posey's Giants and then won it against the Mets in 2015. Apparently, the Royals thought it was Moore's fault that they did not contend this season rather than say the fact that their total payroll is about, say, one-third of that of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I mentioned when Aaron Judge hit his 60th homer that 60 homers was 60 homers, but the way the game is played today, there is no comparison between Judge's 60 and Babe Ruth's 60 in 1927. There was some blowback because everybody wants to believe whatever they saw or they're seeing in sports was or is the greatest thing ever. But as hard as this is to believe... Today's baseball stadiums are tiny compared to 1927. There's also no foul territory now. It used to be about 80 feet from home plate to each dugout in the larger parks. The outfield fences? Lefty hitting Babe Ruth hit eight home runs at Fenway Park in Boston in 1927. The right field fence was 359 feet away. It's 302 feet now. Center field is 31 feet closer at Fenway now. Center field at Yankee Stadium today is 408 feet from the plate. When Babe Ruth played, it was 470. The changes for right-handed hitters like Aaron Judge are just as dramatic. And there's also context. When he hit 60 homers in 1927, Ruth had more home runs that season than every other team in the American League had that season. Ruth hit 60. The Philadelphia A's had 56. To do that today, somebody would have to hit more than 200 home runs in a season. If you only hit 95 home runs in a season, you still wouldn't out-homer any other team in the league. 
There's all kinds of other context. A new baseball is used for almost every pitch in 2022. In 1927, it was something like every 10th or 15th pitch, and a dirty baseball is tougher to see, tougher to hit, and will not go as far. This season, Aaron Judge will strike out more than Babe Ruth did in 1927 and 1926 combined. He'll strike out about as many times as Roger Maris did in 1961, 1960 and 1959 combined. And still there will be the contention that Judge is fashioning one of the greatest offensive seasons of all time because he may win the American League Triple Crown. Again, context. Judge started play Wednesday batting 316. If he wins the batting championship at 316, that will be tied for the fourth lowest average for a batting champion in American League history. It's a great season, and he's a great player. If baseball had ever stood up to the PED users, it would be the season Aaron Judge flat out broke the home run record, but they didn't. Plus, history tells us, historically, it is not one of the greatest seasons ever. Still ahead, Sunday is the anniversary of the day I got fake anthrax sent to my home. The first time I got it sent to my home. After I called the cops, the sender went to prison. When Rupert Murdoch's New York Post wrote up the story, they criticized me for not ignoring the crime. More on the irresponsibility of News Corp, the New York Post, Fox News, Rupert Murdoch, coming up in things I promise not to tell. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, the National Basketball Association. Robert Sarver, suspended by the NBA for a year and fined $10 million for racism and sexism, says he has begun the process of selling the Phoenix Suns franchise, which is great. Except Lord knows how many hundreds of millions in profit he'll make doing so, just like Donald Sterling did when he sold the L.A. Clippers and basketball essentially rewarded him for grotesque racism. There needs to be a manner in which sports leagues can reclaim their franchises for when owners turn out to be scum, giving the banished owner something for his trouble, but turning the profits over to charitable groups, maybe the ones who deal with the victims of the scummery. The runner-up, golfer Greg Norman in D.C. to pitch the Saudi blood money golf tour with the ironic name Liv, of which he is CEO. He addressed the Republican study group. In the middle of the meeting, Republican Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee actually walked out. Congressman Burchett called Norman's spiel propaganda, said the study group shouldn't be spending its time on the Saudis and billionaire oil guys, and just to button it up, said he couldn't understand Greg Norman's Australian accent. Hot enough in here to boil a monkey's bum, your majesty. Burchett later tweeted, quote, weren't Saudis flying some of those planes on 9-11? And what about their killing of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi? One hopes those questions were rhetorical. But our winner, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. If a writer of political fiction created a character as sleazy, as gutless, as opportunistic as Ted Cruz, the script would be returned to him. Cruz has spent this month boasting about the expansion of I-27, the ports to Plains Highway from Texas through North Dakota into Canada. He celebrated all the jobs and dollars it will bring to the state of Texas. 
Cruz tweeted that the 68 to 31 Senate vote approving it was a, quote, great bipartisan victory. Cruz was one of the 31. He voted against it. He's now taking credit for it like every day. This is a fight that I was proud to lead in the United States Senate, Cruz said. He voted against it. It's like Cruz saying, I was proud to lead the defense of my wife after Donald Trump called her ugly in public. Ted, when the Texas power grid failed and 246 Texans froze to death, I flew into action to Cancun Cruz, today's worst person in the world! When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you... Here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. 
I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promise not to tell, and the story of the day of the envelope with the anthrax in it that arrived at my apartment. It was 16 years ago this Sunday. Well, the first envelope with the anthrax in it. And it wasn't obviously really anthrax, though the sender said it was. But you would be surprised how much the FBI and Homeland Security and other people in hazmat suits are not willing to just act on what is or is not obvious about fake anthrax. But first, the Olbermann non-anthrax anthrax letters story has a backstory. We'll start with this reminder. You should never believe any source story you read in the New York Post or indeed in or on any media outlet owned by the Murdochs, like Fox News. They occasionally do report real things, but just as often they make stuff up. Not exaggerate or get slightly wrong or spin for political purposes, but utterly fabricate. On April 11th, 2005, the Post was to run such a story. Only under the threat of multiple lawsuits did the Post spike the story. I've never told this thing before, but I was reminded of it the other day, and I think going through the mechanics of it will illustrate just how evil an organization News Corp actually is. Like you didn't know that from the existence of Tucker Carlson. But more importantly, how unreliable it is as a source of news, even for people who agree with it politically. As a New York Post page six gossip story, this one had everything. It attacked MSNBC. It had quotes from informed sources. Even at one point, it had a witness. It had somebody insulting Peter Jennings right after the late ABC anchorman revealed he had lung cancer. And it was constructed in such a way that if I did not comment on it, they could print the story, then come back the next day and rehash it and add that I was still refusing to comment on it. But there was one overriding problem. It was a complete fabrication. It was full of events that did not happen and people who did not exist. New York Post page six contacted MSNBC's then media relations guy, Jeremy Gaines, on Thursday, April 7th, 2005. And this was the story they told him. Me, a, quote, frequent critic of President Bush had refused to anchor the coverage of the death of Pope John Paul II, pretended to be ill and called in sick instead. The major problem with their story was I had anchored the coverage of the death of Pope John Paul II. I had been anchoring primetime coverage for hours each weeknight leading up to the pontiff's passing. There were viewers who saw me, studio staffers. Carl Bernstein was our in-studio papal expert remembered seeing me there. There were videotapes of me anchoring. This did not stop the post. In the first version of their story... Page six told us that their unnamed source had been on board the Amtrak Acela train from Washington to New York, sitting near my agent as my agent talked to somebody on a cell phone. 
Their witness said my agent complained that I had had a, quote, meltdown after, quote, calling in sick rather than anchor the papal coverage, which I anchored. But there was more. Quote, Alderman, a frequent critic of the president's policies, said it was better in sports. They quoted my agent quoting me into the phone. She supposedly said, I'll be dealing with this all day now. Apart from the fact that I had anchored the coverage the Post claimed I had not anchored, there was another major flaw in the story. My agent was not on a train from Washington to New York on the day in question, nor the week in question, nor, in fact, the year in question. She told me she thought she had once been on a train from Washington to New York in the year 1967. My agent at the time lived atop Mount Shasta in California and so seldom left there that when she once drove to town to get the mail, I asked her for full details because I jokingly suggested we should lead the news with it. So the next day, Friday, April 8th, New York Post page six came back with a different version of their story. They had misheard their source. Of course, it wasn't my agent on the phone from train from D.C. to New York. It was a woman who worked for my agent, a woman named Susan, a woman named Susan, whom I had, they would report, already phoned three times that morning and was to meet urgently at the boathouse in Central Park, presumably because the middle of Grand Central Station would have been a little too public. MSNBC's Jeremy Gaines responded again with some irrefutable refutations. Nobody named Susan worked for my agent. In fact, sorry, Post, nobody at all worked for my agent. She was independent. She had a working relationship with a small Los Angeles agency, which basically covered her phone when she was on vacation, which was almost never because she never left the top of Mount Shasta. We called that agency and they confirmed they not only did not have anybody working for them named Susan, but nobody from their agency was even on the East Coast so far that year. At this point, I called the television columnist of the New York Post, who I knew a little and off the record explained to him that I was furious and getting ready to sue, but that NBC was far angrier than I was and that they were going to sue as well and sue the editor of Page Six personally in an effort to put him out of business. I calmly went through the facts of this. This guy who had a conscience sighed, said he got these kinds of calls more often than I would believe. And I said, no, I'd believe it. And he said he would go to the editor of page six and explain somebody was lying to the editor of page six and he was going to get himself sued into bankruptcy over a really obviously untrue and completely disproven story. A couple of hours later, New York Post page six called again, demanding a comment from me on a third different version of their exclusive papal scoop. No, the woman their witness heard, who they first said was my agent, then said she'd gotten it wrong. It was a woman named Susan who worked for my agent, had now become a woman who worked for my agent, whose name the witness never heard, but she was talking to somebody else named Susan. And there was an additional quote that appeared out of nowhere. I'll be dealing with this all day now was gone. It was replaced with I'll be dealing with this all day now. The same week Peter Jennings makes his announcement about having lung cancer. This idiot, a frequent President Bush critic, is sitting around in his pajamas calling me about this. Years later, a former gossip reporter in Murdoch's employee explained to me that uh, his celebrity and gossip people are taught never to back down from a confrontation, and that if the subject of one of their hit jobs fights back or tries to refute or especially threatens legal action to keep making the story worse and worse for them, 
And in the first decade of this century, you were supposed to try to work in a defense of George W. Bush. But there's also what they called an emergency exit. If there is no question that the story is nonsensical, the basic spine of the story does not line up with provable facts, just abandon it. Don't tell the subject of your attack that you are abandoning it. Just don't make any more phone calls and don't send any more emails about it. Just vanish. And then send the name of the subject around to all the other Murdoch operations to see if they can come up with any dirt on the subject to punish them for fighting back against the Murdoch lies. Well, it took the New York Post a year and a half after dropping this story. They never called back about Susan or my agent or the boathouse in Central Park again. But on September 26, 2006, I opened an envelope bearing a California postmark at my home in New York and a sticky substance. It looked like Drano mixed with talcum powder fell out. An accompanying note said it was anthrax and now I and other liberals would get a taste of our own medicine. Even reading those chilling words and having covered the actual anthrax letters attacks of 2001 for CNN, I knew it wasn't anthrax. The guy who supposedly sent the actual anthrax was an expert in the field, and even he mishandled the stuff so badly that the official report was he gave himself anthrax poisoning and died of it. On the other hand, what if I was wrong? My apartment building was filled with little old ladies who had lived there since Roosevelt was president. I only assumed that meant Franklin Roosevelt. The odds were about one in a trillion this was actually anthrax, but who was I to dismiss this on their behalf? So I made a phone call. Well, that made it into quite an evening. The cops showed up. The FBI showed up. They said, of course, it's not anthrax, but we have to act like it is. The hazmat squad came in. They set up a command post in the building. They swept my apartment. They said, okay, now you have to go to the emergency room for tests. And I said, it's not anthrax. You just said so. And they said, if we have to do this, you have to do this too. I laughed. And if you don't, we can arrest you as a threat to public health and make you do it. So out I went into an ambulance dressed in a hazmat suit, one size too small that really chafed in the groin. I spent the night getting checked out and the FBI called back and said, it's like Drano with uh, ivory soap flakes. But they also said there were other letters that had arrived that night and the night before and the week before to people like the chairman of CBS and David Letterman's office, and Nancy Pelosi, and the wrong John Stewart. And they couldn't make me do this, but it would really help if I did not report what had happened to me on my TV show, just for one day, because they had a lead on the guy and they didn't want to scare him off. Naturally, I said, sure. The next day, while we were still observing the embargo on the story, my story, which actually happened to me, New York Post page six ran a picture of me with the headline, Powder Puff Spooks Keith, and making sure to identify me as, quote, can you guess? A frequent critic of President Bush's policies. It mocked me for not just assuming it was fake anthrax and ignoring it and claimed I insisted the cops take me to the hospital. Quote, whether they gave him a lollipop on the way out isn't known. By the way, one of the anthrax letters in 2001, the actual anthrax letters had been mailed to the New York Post and one of their staffers contracted the anthrax poisoning. But that didn't seem to matter anymore when it was a chance to take a shot at me. Anyway, as it turned out, there was a guy in California sending out these threatening letters, each with fake anthrax to about a dozen people. He sent me four of them. I soon knew the FBI guys on the case by their first names. And one day I pointed out to FBI Doug 
that the last envelope had a barcode on it that maybe could track the guy. And he said, oh, you're right. And the next thing I knew, the FBI had videotaped the suspect mailing yet another letter to me from his home in Woodland Hills, California. And I swear to God, he actually lived in his mother's basement. And FBI Doug said, do we have your permission to pull the letter out of the mailbox and open it? And I said, sure. And the guy wound up going to prison for like 18 months. But not before FBI Doug said, by the way, the barcode you noticed, it was for the post office here. And that's where we found his address and the fact that he'd uh, bought all this stuff and purchased a postal money order for $15 made out to the Catherine Harris for Florida Senate campaign. And that led us to his online history, which is all about how she is the most beautiful woman in the world, Catherine Harris, except for maybe some gal named Laura something, the most beautiful woman in history. And I said, Laura, Laura Ingram. And FBI Doug said, yeah, that's it, Laura Ingram. And if that isn't 10 years of my life in one sentence, I don't know what is. I've done all the damage I can do here. Help me out. Give this thing a good review or a rating or a heart or a smiley emoji, emoji or forward it to somebody I don't even know anymore. The Countdown theme from Beethoven's Ninth, arranged, produced, and performed by Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. Our sports music, the Olbermann theme written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Larry David. Everything else, pretty much my fault. And if my performance was a little less than usual, I'm recovering from knee surgery and it really hurts. That's Countdown for this, the 625th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. And as this postscript, ouch. New episode tomorrow. I'm Keith Olbermann. Till then, good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.